Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. And I have a pleasure today to talk to Lior about his company and his journey. Lior, can you please tell me about yourself and the company? Definitely, Evgeny, and thank you for inviting me here. So hello, everyone. My name is Lioya. I'm the CEO at Grip Security. I originally started in security at 18 when I joined the Israeli intelligence, left about seven years later as a captain, worked for a few startups. Last of all, before I became a founder, I used to be the CTO at one of the biggest security investors in the world, YL Ventures, that invested, they manage about $700 million that they invest in seed stage security startups. Grip is one of them because eventually I got both jealous in giving other people money and I get very, very deep into some of the biggest problems in security that we were trying to solve as a VC, specifically SaaS security. So I've left, happily they've enjoyed, they've joined our journey as seed investors, Intel Capital joined a few months later as well. So we raised $25 million to fund the company. And then I joined together with two of my good friends from the military service, Idan Fast and Alon Schenkler, to build the company. 16 employees today, about 20 months later, and going fast and going strong. Thank you. You wanted to become wealthy and you decided to start the company because you see how many other people making money and you don't. So you say, okay. <laughs> I wanted to make a splash, make my mother proud. But mostly I've seen, after we invest in a company, we as an investment team, and specifically myself as CTO, would coach the team in validating early ideas, in recruiting, in building the infrastructure that helps you build a company and sell to Fortune 500 companies. So for me, it wasn't about money because a day after you get a six, seven million dollars, you're not rich. It takes a lot of luck and a ton of devotion to successfully sell a company. Most startups fail, losing money for the founders. I think it's the excitement that got me really jealous. Seeing them and the spark that they had was something I wanted to do myself as well. So you're working in YL and you decided you want to start a company and you also did it with two other individuals. Can you walk me and the listeners to how it happened. Why SaaS? Why not cloud IS security or AWS, as I mentioned, or something else? Yeah. The security market in general is often looks noisy. There's so many security vendors doing different things. But realistically, I don't think it's noisy. I think it's it has so many different opportunities and so many different challenges that there's room for 10x the number of vendors compared to what existed 10 years ago. Specifically, when you think of SaaS, we saw as a VC, even before Grip, we saw SaaS as one of the biggest growing problems in today's security paradigm, where companies are shifting from on-prem environments into um, cloud-hosted third-party SaaS supply chain websites. But we didn't see the existing technology in the market that shifts into this direction. Uh, and while there's a lot of companies that are trying to solve challenges with SaaS, we believed, and I believe specifically, it's a big enough problem to become one of the new pillars of how we 
build a security stack. So if we have network security, cloud security, and AppSec today, one of the next pillars in this list is going to be set. And then it's always about timing. I think the timing was perfect. This is also why we see other SaaS security companies founded in 2020 with COVID, with people working from anywhere, where the network is literally doesn't matter anymore. SaaS shined. So I decided to leverage my skill and my knowledge in this space to try and build a solution for CSET. Very, very good answer. I think it's very makes sense. Some people start the company by themselves, some with founders. You mm -hmm. did it with two founders. What was the motivation and how did you guys decide who will do what? I'll say I had the benefit of, and I still have the benefit of working with people that I really appreciate and like a lot because we all used to work together back in the military and were fairly close. There's, running a company is a very hard thing to do. There's just more things that you need to do than you have time to and more responsibility than I think a single person can take on himself. I'm seeing single founders building companies and being successful, and I admire that, but it's not a wish. Even though financially being a single founder could be a better outcome, if you think of your potential for success, having people that are more talented than you in some of the things that you need to do in the company brings better benefit than doing it alone. So alone co-founder and VP R&D is the best VP of R&D out of the three of us. I don't think I can do this role. The same way I don't think he would like to be a sales and marketing manager as I need to be as a CEO. Uh, Idana CTO is outstanding, but he wouldn't want to do or should do the other roles. And even if we, if I theoretically has, had hired an external VP of R&D or an external CTO, like we did with a VP of product or VP of sales, there's so many challenges that come in that don't fit the title, but they fit the co-founder title and responsibility. And even those more than a single person can handle in my view. Great. Maybe it's time to at least give an elevator pitch about what the company actually does. Definitely. So Drip is a SaaS security control plane solution. Basically, we see how the traditional paradigm of a closed network with walls around it, both firewalls and proxies and others, just doesn't apply anymore. Today, the barrier for adoption for a new SaaS application within an organization is basically a sign-up form. Every employee, every business unit can go to a website, sign up, and start using a new app. And this creates this proliferation of SaaS applications where if every one of our business units is using 25 to 40 different SaaS solutions, they join together to hundreds and thousands of different solutions outside of the IT and security scope. And then GRIP comes in. What we do is that we discover, prioritize, secure, and orchestrate SaaS and reduce risk at scale. But then technically speaking, not using the the marketing pitch, we have the most accurate SaaS discovery solution. We find every SaaS, every user, how did they authenticate and, and a lot more. With no proxies, no agents, 10 minutes of deployment, we start by showing you everything you got, and then we automate the backend processes of reducing risk, whether it's SSO connectivity, configurations, password hygiene, offboarding, there's a lot of small things that add up together to a big change in your overall SaaS posture. Thank you. 
So you have three founders, a lot of tasks to do. How do you stay on track? How do you manage tasks? How do you make sure that you're doing the right things and not something you want to waste your money? No matter what I'll say, we probably fail in being 100% efficient. Because I can tell you right now, I have 20 unread Slack messages. Some of them I know they're about things we need to do for our customers to win a POV. And we're about three days late. I looked at the Slack message preview on my phone. So we obviously miss things. I think what's important in order to scale is two things. Is one, bring the right people in. And then when you have not only the right co-founders, but the right managers and the right responsibility taking engineers and architects and sales managers, all of them together, you need to make sure they work for you in the company. And the second thing is to give them the responsibility and not taking it yourself. And my sales team would be angry if they hear that because I'm very in the details, sometimes too much. But I still believe that they need to take the lead on it, on everything. So I would never be in a position when I tell someone, stop talking to this customer. I'm the one talking to him now because this couldn't scale and would never scale. So it's better to empower the team and give them the responsibility and just make sure things don't fall beneath the cracks, but it's cracks between different people that are holding the wave of challenges that you need to take control over. I kind of skip important topics that I like to ask. You figure out a need in the industry, but this is something for you. You think it's important. How you do market validation to make sure you're not building a bubble or smoke and puff and nobody is going to buy it? It's a great question. I'm sure many of the founders you interview would talk about this because there's, there's a lot of good cliches. Ask customers, ask them what they would be willing to buy, build an MVP. And it's true. It's, it's not just cliches. Obviously, you need to make sure the market needs your solution. But talking from a VC perspective, I would spend time, about five, five to 10 teams a week, trying to help them validate ideas back in my role as CTO. And founders have a tendency to fall in love with those solutions. They would go out of a meeting and say, oh, this stupid customer doesn't know all of the risk that he has because he didn't listen to us. And realistically, if it happens enough, then they're probably wrong and not the customer. Still... What we did specifically, again, I had an internal advantage. I worked in validating problems, working in a cybersecurity focused VC. But we spoke, I think I've spent about 120 hours speaking about the problem space with customers before even thinking of a technical solution. It's why is it a problem? And those are the question I would ask. Why is it a problem? Why is it a problem now? Because if it was a problem five years ago, someone would have solved it or so why now what changed and why does existing solutions don't do it or can't do it what prevents them with adding a small feature and building the same solution as you or why did they fail and why can you overcome the challenges that they had and validation is important it's definitely an important part to understand this because if you don't do this and how do you know if it's going to work for you no overall, is there a certain winds or certain direction that tell you that you're on the right path that you don't need to pivot the solution somewhere else? Yeah. Adding a bit more about validation, just seeing 
challenges that other teams are having. I think the main problem is that getting introduced to 10 customers is easy. Getting introduced to the same 10 people for the second time is okay. And getting them for the third time is hard. And you can assume your first idea is going to be bad. Your second idea is going to be bad. And your third one is going to be good. But by, by the time you're getting to the third idea, you're kind of exhausting your resources in terms of the people you could reach. So it's very important to build the right relationship with those people as you come in and don't overuse them on an idea that's, that isn't good. Because coming in with a bad idea also helps your credibility in some way. My questions to ask are generally, what do you do today to solve this problem? Because if the problem exists, we, could ex we can expect the customers to do something. Maybe they would like it automated. Maybe they would like it to happen at scale. But if they don't do anything today to solve a problem that you're talking about, there's probably no problem or that the problem is not big enough for them to even. And the second thing is just ask them what would be the minimum requirement for them to buy it and start gathering those answers just to understand, is it something you can build under four months? Because if you can, that's the base that you need in order to start expanding the solution. They don't need to pay. They just need to install it and enjoy it. But some ideas are too big for companies to get to a point where they're testing them. They run out of money before they have a good enough solution. What about hiring? You mentioned mm -hmm. you started the company during pandemic. I'm guessing majority of the hiring were in Israel to develop. But eventually you need to go to Europe, you need to go to Canada, maybe later United States to, to kind of expand. How do you do this? We often ask why we're not hiring engineers outside of Israel. And the answer is, sounds insulting, but it doesn't. We're hiring in Israel because there's, we, we have access to talent that we need in Tel Aviv that we don't have anywhere else. It doesn't mean this talent doesn't exist outside of Tel Aviv. It just means we have the reputation and the network to get to the right people and to convince them that Grip is the right company for them. And it's an important piece because if I were to land in New York and interview engineers, the top 10% can work in every company that they want to. And for them to choose me compared to an alternative, I don't have the existing benefit to do so. And I also have, don't have the connections to get to those people. So we're hiring in Tel Aviv. Back then, all of, most of the interviews was face-to-face, -face, well, face-to-face -face because it's not a big city. But eventually when we started hiring globally, all of them moved to Zoom. So we're still doing Zoom interviews for almost everyone who's interviewing in the US. And while I've theoretically agreed to fly and meet some of the people, suggested to a few of them. The world has shifted in a way where references are the most important thing you can get. And we're working very hard with them. I'll, I'll never hire anyone without good references. And the interviews would be like this podcast over Zoom. I think eventually we're going to have like a you know, blockchain for references to make sure it's actually true references and you can validate it's not, it's not fabricated. Yeah, agreed. If you can give an advice to yourself, not five years ago, but two, three years ago when you started, what you would do differently? Oh, wow, that's a good question. I think 
I had a conversation with one of our sales manager yesterday about things we could have done better. I asked him the, the following question. If we were to go back in time to January of 2022, with all of the knowledge we have today, because the company improved dramatically over the last year in messaging, sales mode, and everything, all of the knowledge we have today, and rewrite the plan, could we've built a better sales plan or could we've done better and get 200% of the sales target that we had for this year instead of what we did now, which is amazing, by the way, we've done really well. Could we have done twice as better? I think the answer is yes, he's a bit skeptical, but I matured a lot, both as a manager and cybersecurity executive in how we view the problem and how we message it to our customers and prospects and partners and everything else. So there's a lot of mature, there's a big maturity process in selling, building a company, building a solution, building a platform that it's very hard to replicate. If there's a single advice, my single advice is just go faster on everything. But it's easier to say when you know you have the right solution for the right problem. So you mentioned the right solution to the right problem. Mm -hmm. You, I'm guessing, have a roadmap on what to develop. Yeah. But there's also customers' requests. But there's also sometimes you want to tell the customers, we're building this to spark the interest and you don't have it yet. It's like a chicken and egg. How do you balance? Like, what do you tell the customers? How do you change your roadmap because the customer wants something? Engineers typically tend to take it kind of hard when you promise a customer a feature we don't have. So they're coming to me and they'll be like, oh, I heard in this conversation, you told them we can do this or we can do this or one of the salespeople told them we can do this and we cannot. So we're lying to the customers. We're not lying to the customers because with how enterprise sales process look like, they're going to take about 10, 12 weeks just in legal before we can get the product sold. And in 10 weeks for a company that exists for 20 months, that's 10% of our existence where we have 10 times the developers than we used, used to have at the beginning. So if there's a feature that piques the interest of a customer, we'll build it by the time the product will be deployed. I can fully promise that. And this is why I'm feeling very comfortable talking about features that would only exist, especially the ones in our roadmap. Those would exist before the customer would send the PO. If we have ways to bring a lot of value to our customers, we'll work very hard to do that because I assume that most of the needs of one customer apply to all of the rest. Fair. I think if you're transparent with the customer and you also make sure we can deliver it by this time, then I think it's very fair. It makes sense. Always be selling, always be moving forward. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about dark side. Let's <laughs> think about the stuff that didn't go as planned. And for everybody that's listening, please continue listening. If you're still here, don't forget to comment, like, and share. It's definitely helping the show and everybody else to know about it. So tell me about stuff that didn't go as planned. But the stuff you wish like, oh, I don't want, I didn't want this meeting. I don't want to talk with them again. Yeah. Managing a company, my experience so far, how I describe it, is like driving a burning Ferrari. It's very lucrative. It's moving very fast. And it's on fire. And being on fire means that at any point in time, there's bad things that are happening. I can give you an example for last week. We 
hired a new customer success manager that we were all very excited about. We stopped the interviewing processes with all of the other people that we interviewed. And a week before starting the job, he sent us an email that he decided that he's staying at his old job because his old boss offered him a $40,000 box. And that sucks because there's real damage that's happening to the customer, to the company, which is not even under my control. I, I've, did, I've done everything right. And there's still existing damage to my team, to our reputation, to our customers that I'm not getting the right support, even though we'll give them everything they need. But it introduces risk that was super frustrating. Second example, we had a $400,000 deal with a Fortune 50 company that in legal, like finished legal reviews, everything was okay. We had a POV deployment call to close the deal within a week. And then the meeting was moved three days ahead and the project canceled because of market going down and reprioritization of a budget. And I closed my phone for 48 hours over the week and I didn't respond to everyone because this was devastating. It, it's the difference between coming to the board with X or two X of revenue. We, it blew up our quarter in a bad way. So all of those are very discouraging. And those were two examples of things that weren't under my control. I've done a lot of mistakes as well. Is there a way to cope with this? You personally, everybody is different, but do you have a mechanism to help you to regulate yourself? Okay, it happened. I need to get back to myself because people expect from me leadership. Yes, it's, I wouldn't, not responding to messages on my phone is, is a bit extreme because usually I'm here and I need to explain to the team why everything is okay. Because everything is okay, even though I took a hit. Because I think that the biggest challenge that you get used to when founding a company is that everything that happens dramatically shifts your mood. So a good deal coming in means you're happy for the next week. And a deal falling or a candidate that decided not to join the company or a presentation that went bad, all of those drop you on the ground. And, and I'm very extreme in how I'm used to reacting to things that I, my advice to myself it's also to other people, but mostly to myself, is when something bad happens, wait 48 hours before you react, because there's a very good chance that something equally good will happen at this time frame. So far, it's it a, was. It's a very good response. Anything you're doing to yourself, you're going hiking, dancing, I don't know, yoga, meditation. No, I'm bad at self-caring, but Idana's CTO is swimming. And the reason he's swimming, it's the only sport where you cannot take your phone with you. Scuba diving as well, I'm guessing, you know. Well, scuba diving <laughs> is, is a harder sport to, to, to get to, but the reason he's enjoying it is that he you cannot take the phone with you. And if there's an emergency, it has to wait for 35 minutes. I'm not happy about it, but he is, which <laughs> I support. Great. A lot of cool and interesting advice. I definitely like the definition of the burning Ferrari driving. I guess you have to drive all the time. There is no traffic jams to make sure you can no. drive or, or, or learn how to avoid them. Anything else you want to add? I uh, know. I'm really happy you invited me here. If anyone is interested, 
either on learning about but also consulting about entrepreneurship i always have two three hours a week that i'm dedicating to help other founders i have 60 hours a week that i'm dedicating to selling SaaS security products so if you're interested in both of those time frames uh just let me know sounds good you thank you very much yeah thank you as well everyone that's listening thank you very much for joining Please don't forget to share and comment and subscribe and we'll see you in the next episode.